Hello, everybody. Welcome to IMD Podcast. My name is Howard Yu. I'm Professor of Management and Innovation at IMD. Joining me today is Professor Stefan Giron, who is also expert in strategy. Thank you, Stefan. Nice to be here with you all. <laughs> so Chinese New Year is coming up. So first off the bat, Happy New Year, um, Stefan. Um, you travel to China on a regular basis. What do you usually do there these days? Well, I do actually. I first of all, I、um, take some Western groups for discovery expeditions、uh, in China, whether it is for um, um, company visits or executive MBA visits. And、um, the second thing is that I receive and organize、uh, groups. Uh, and programs for Chinese clients here in Lausanne, right? And my third connection with China is that because I teach international strategy,、uh, China is really changing everything in the world of international relations and strategy. So I find this fascinating. Oh yeah, I remember taking a group of German going to Shenzhen, and what a shock! You're looking at whether it's e-commerce or mobile payment,、mm-hmm. and even just the international outlook of the city. Compared to decades ago, is day and night. Yeah, especially it's a city that didn't exist、uh, before 1979, right? And、uh, yeah, and the same thing.、Um, a few months ago, I took a group there, and we visited three of the ten mo- most innovative companies in China. So、um, I think it's really very impressive the way Shenzhen has developed. What is your favorite city in China? Well, I, I love the I love the.、Uh, The cultural heritage of Beijing, but I love the elegance and the contrast of Shanghai. Yeah, what startled me the most about Beijing is like I remember two, three years ago, the air pollution is so bad in the city, I could barely breathe. But last trip I was there, I see blue sky.、Mm-hmm. I was like taking picture, putting on Facebook and Instagram, and people were like, "This blue sky exists in Beijing." So. Things are changing really rapidly, and it reminds us how forceful when Beijing has decided, the government has decided something to change, then they make it happen in a, almost a, a blip of the eye. Okay, so today we have some pick. We are thinking about doing some prediction or major trend in 2020 about China. So, Stefan, you have three picks, and I had two. Um, you pick one is about this international relations, and particularly in you know last year it was all about trade war tariffs going all over the news on in full rage.、Um, so, but then there's a deal signed last week. What does it mean? Well, I think we have to put this deal in the context of the electoral、uh, elections this year in the U.S. Two years ago, the Trump administration engaged in the first strong confrontation against China since the Korean War, and the purpose was really to try and get China、um, complied with similar rules as the U.S. in terms of economy openness to、um, um, uh, to foreign direct investments in certain services, parity on intellectual property rights. Uh, and trying to close the trade deficit, right? But I think what's happened is that、uh, over the past two years, the Chinese economy has shown incredible resilience,、mm. and the U.S. close to the elections, the Trump administration realized that they were not getting nearly closed to where they wanted to go. 
So I think that, that hastened the need for a deal. And the central part of this deal is that China has accepted to formally commit to buy 200 billions of American goods in manufacturing, in agricultural products, which will greatly please, of course, the Trump electorate. Right, right. So the crux of the deal is simply buying more product made in USA. Yes. But the Chinese would be so happy to buy more semiconductor, right, or U.S. technologies. But that is not part of the deal. In fact, what U.S. government wants China to buy are more on the basic commodities. Is that right? No, no. Also some, uh, some uh, uh, more aircraft and some uh, uh, high-value manufactured products. Right. So, in fact, the full embargo on, uh, you know, the, the Google ecosystem and the supply to Chinese companies has never been really, really completely enforced so far. I see. So, um, uh, uh, so there's going to be still some negotiations uh, going, going on. But my main take about this uh, last week's deal is that it's just a truce. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly not the end of the war. And there are several reasons to that, you may ask me. Uh, the first one is, as long as um, China or the Americans perceived China to possibly one day converge to a liberal democracy, China was a a true partner to the U.S. But that's not going to happen anytime exactly. soon. Exactly. <laughs> it's been really shattered, right? And uh, China is moving towards a much more authoritarian regime. Mm -hmm. uh, China has openly declared that they would like to topple the U.S. dollar as a currency of reserve. Um, uh, China has announced that they would block uh, any uh, suppliers of uh, PCs and components right. by 2025. Uh, China is expanding in such a way in Africa, Southeast Asia, and along the Silk Roads. Mm -hmm. That is, if you like, locking out the U.S. from traditional allies. And suddenly the United States has realized that actually they're on a collision course. And I think what has made the U.S. in both camps, right. Republicans and also Democrats, is that China is becoming a technological rival. And uh, in particular, you know, rightly or wrongly, these discussions about is China stealing IP on a, on a big scale? Um, is it really going to place us at a major disadvantage? Right. Although, you know, one could think about stealing know-how and learning by imitation is every country becomes rich. That is the most viable path. I remember when I was young, people complain about the Japanese product is all copycat of the Western yes, world. exactly. And then it's the South Korean, then mm -hmm. it's the Taiwan, Hong Kong, where I was growing up, and now the narrative is about China. Yes. But what's really interesting is like I remember when we were still in university, everyone talked about the benefit of free trade. You want countries and nations to exchange goods and services, and there is this notion about comparable advantage. You specialize in areas where you are comparatively better, stronger, stronger and then the world can become wealthier by exchange. And that whole paradigm seems to go out to the window. Thank you very much. That's, that's again the same misunderstanding. There, was, there are two points in your uh, question and remark, Howard. 
the first one is important to realize that China has become an innovator in its own right. And you're going to illustrate that in certain areas yourself in a moment. But as you know, the, 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 the China Made in China 2025 policy, where China has announced they want to take the lead in 10 economic sectors, in some of them it's already a reality. You're going to talk about 5G, but electrical batteries, e-commerce, the future of retail, high-speed train manufacturing, the genomics. China is no longer an imitator, but it's really an inventor in its own right. And that's incredibly challenging for the United States. And what's incredible is that we are again, like in the 1930s, in this situation where instead of opening, we're closing. The big problem of the United States is that they are stuck in these Reaganomics policies, which are, you know, super low tax for the very rich, no investment in education, no investment in infrastructure, and no industrial policy, right. right? So you're right, the United States has been like the planet now is three times as rich as what it was in 1990, thanks to free trade. But with globalization, you have losers and winners. And this is completely predicted in the old free trade economics, like Ricardo's uh, theories. So the problem for the US, to some extent with Europe, is this inability to change policy for training and compensating the losers of globalization. Hmm. And what do politicians do? They run out and shut the borders, which is also going to create problems because we all know that it's going to slow down economic growth worldwide. Right, that's, that's kind of sad to see, you know, by simply the need to shift attention away from domestic illness, you're yes. kind of looking at external adversary <laughs> yes. and, and, and having all these uh, almost a reactive policy coming around. But, but then I was thinking more closer to home, right? Um, it felt almost inevitable that this decoupling between US and China would continue to accelerate, that the two countries may try to de-emphasize their dependency on each other. Now we are here in Switzerland and a lot of our clients, our participants, our students from Europe. So what should some of the executive here in Europe, whether it's large multinational or small medium-sized companies, mm. what should we do to think ahead and prepare ourselves? Because we are really going beyond a, you know, uncertain world in the past, right? Different countries have different politics, different economic system. So you kind of, you know, spread your hatch across. What we are seeing now is we are, the world is being pulled apart by two superpower. And there is the US orbit, and there is a China emerging orbit as well. Mm -hmm. What's the implication for Europe in general? Well, Europe, it's a great question. I think Europe uh, has to really find its way. In the same way as the US is very schizophrenic about China, because on the one hand, they want China to comply with their own rules of the game. But at the same time, they threaten China to decouple and withdraw from supply chain. Uh, Europe is also schizophrenic because let's face it, Europe last April declared China as a systemic rival. However, uh, China ref uh, Europe refrained 
from supporting the United States in those negotiations to try to get a, a level playing field on the IP rules. And last week we had Phil Hardy, the new trade commissioner, who said, oh, by the way, what a disastrous trade deal between Europe and the United States because it has no, achieved nothing in terms of IP. Mm -hmm. But I'm sorry, Europe, where were you <laughs> in those negotiations, right? So I think this trade deal is, um, and what's going on is threatening for Europe in multiple ways. First way is that we're talking now in terms of managed trade. The US and China have agreed that they would trade on certain conditions with each other. This means that other suppliers like Europe are probably going to lose out. Okay, that's the first implication. Um, the second implication is that the US has shattered the international order of the World Trade Organization. You know, they've actually neutered the World Trade Organization's um, conflict resolution system. So it's very likely the US will continue turning the heat on Europe to try and bargain mercantilist uh, uh, benefits. And um, as you say, as the conflict between US and China becomes ideological, yeah. it's very likely that Europe will have to choose camp. That's the nightmarish scenario the nightmare. for, company, uh, for yeah. company rooted, whether you're in Germany or France or Denmark or the Nordic region. Or in Japan, in, uh, for that matter, you know, because right. they will be also be asked. But in Europe, what's extraordinary is that we have potentially one of the, perhaps the first economic power, but remains toothless in terms of being able to dictate hmm. the rules of the game between these two other players. Right. And I think the travise of those things will be, it will accelerate yeah. the, the, the change in the European Union, especially for the Europeans, the realization that uh, we are strongly working on democratic values and Europe is increasingly isolated in a world where of strong men. Mm. Uh, and by the way, strong men also being on the edge of Europe in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Okay, wow. So um, not easy to navigate no. with all these uh, changes of international relations. When we come back, let's talk about social trends in China as a lighter topic too. So Howard, the next trend we would like to discuss is uh, uh, as we talked about um, uh, social changes and, uh, and technological breakthroughs in, uh, in China. What's your view on what's happening, you know, about uh, 5G connectivity and how is it transforming and impacting uh, the Chinese society and the rest of the world for that matter? Yeah, oh my God, like 5G is such an important area that you hear about this war or race for 5G between US and China. I think fundamentally, policymakers really understand the value of connectivity. If you think about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the emergence of mobile phone really changes the way society can organize themselves economically. And one of the key factor that in China, at least, these millions and almost billions of people lived out of poverty, of course, is enabled by the economic development, but it's also because of connectivity as well. 
And today, if you're looking at Shenzhen or Silicon Valley, all these startups are basically riding on the foundation of the internet. And 5G, um, when it's mature, it promises almost 100 times faster uh, in terms of network speed than today, which is why whoever controlled the plumbing of the next generation of the society would probably dictate how the world is going to get organized. Correct. And I think fundamentally that's the reason why U.S. tried to crack down Huawei, which is the leading player in 5G. To buy themselves time, isn't it? Yeah, because... Or is there a real superiority already in Chinese 5G? Well, the inconvenient truth is, in the United States, the whole supply chain doesn't really deliver 5G. If you look at Nokia and Ericsson, this is not U.S. company. Their manufacturing base is, in fact, ironically, in China. So U.S. doesn't have the ecosystem independently to realize the vision of 5G. Versus when you're looking at China, Huawei is rooted in China, Shenzhen, and all the factories there. And also, from a policymaker, the Chinese government can always command by fiat. If they want to rebuild infrastructure, they could. Versus in the United States, taking the case of 5G, the interest group is so fractured. Yeah. So when they auction, for instance, this spectrum, uh, whether it's NASA or FCC, they have different viewpoint about which area of the spectrum we should use for 5G, and all those really slow down the deployment. Versus in China, you see once the government mandate, this is our plan, then they pull resources together, set aside commercial interest, and just roll it out. So I think there is almost this fear that the adoption and the widespread of 5G, China will take its lead. And because of that, you see the crackdown, the anxiety all around the world. Right. But so do you think it's, it's already a done deal then? Is, uh, or will the US or, or Europe, for that matter, catch up? Or will it be too late? Or what, what, what's your take on how the evolution will, uh, of this industry will, uh, will shape? Yeah, so, you know, there are many areas related to 5G. Uh, China is leading its way, but there's also area that China is falling behind. But if you take a firm perspective, for instance, uh, Huawei, one of the famous painting now these days hanging around Huawei campus is this Russian jet that during the Second World War, they're flying back home with holes on it. Mm -hmm. And they use that as a metaphor, that the crackdown against Huawei right now is like shooting onto their companies, and their companies have holes. But we would land back, and we would accomplish our mission triumphantly. And that is the whole mentality of Huawei, and which is the leading player for 5G equipment. Now, of course, China still need to import a lot of semiconductor. Yeah. Um, and also depending on a lot of foreign players to complete the entire value chain. Mm -hmm. So whether it's companies such as TSMC in Taiwan or a lot of Japanese companies, they're still relying on some of these leading manufacturers to help out to complete with the entire product in its value chain. And of course, the U.S. government from time to time would also exert pressure, not just U.S. company to not do business with Huawei, but also other third countries' company as well. Um, out of all this, what we're seeing is it really awakened the China's self-determination, that they want to make sure technologically we would truly be self-sufficient. As much as the U.S. government would impose entity list, 
barring Huawei of buying U.S. technologies, now the Chinese government have this unreliable list, listing U.S. company that China can no longer rely on over the long run. It just goes to show sometimes a crackdown of a single company. Whatever rationale we could put behind the initiative, it could backfire. And right now, the irony is just trying to slow down Huawei from deploying 5G may in fact have accelerate the national agenda to become technologically self-independent. Definitely, and that's what we hear about uh, this decoupling of technological worlds and these two technologies perhaps evolving in parallel. Uh, uh, and that, that, that comes, uh, comes back to that, yeah. Yeah, and I think the bigger worry for um, companies in Europe is just like you said, um, they are forced to pick side, not just politically, but now technologically as yes. well. If you think about any car companies, they're all working on self-driving cars. And in China, because 5G is pretty much being seen as imminent, the city infrastructure can be updated. The whole notion of connecting, connecting car, connected car, is pretty much offloading all these computing capability onto city infrastructure. Yeah. Now in Silicon Valley in the United States, infrastructure upgrade tended to be far few and in between. And very patchy. And very patchy. Mm. And so the infrastructure will, in the medium term, would remain to be dumb, not smart. Mm. Which means that all the self-driving capability needs to reside in the car itself. Mm. Now if you look things in this way, so even from a product offering, one could no longer think about one single product. And that really challenged the existing paradigm of how a lot of multinational build their businesses. Oftentimes, fundamentally, is one single product standard globally. Yes. Yeah, you do customization here and there. You come up with product, different product design and user interface. But the foundational technological component is uniform. Standard. It's worldwide mm. standard. Mm. And what we're seeing is right now from 5G to AI, maybe we're moving to a world for the very first time, we don't even have one single internet anymore. Um, and and that, that may be something we're gonna see how it unfolds in 2020. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Okay, Stefan, so let's talk about domestic policy. Uh, what's on in China? Are they facing any headwind? Although they're expanding internationally, people are fearful of the rise of this nation, rightly or wrongly. What's going on domestically inside China? Well, great question. I think, um, uh, first of all, if we look at the economic uh, level, we can expect, you know, the, the main trend is China moving into a more mature phase. Mm. Uh, uh, so don't get me wrong, you know, China is still growing uh, by 6%. Uh, I think it was 6.1% for 2019. Which is still great. Which is still great, right? But um, uh, by, by China's standard, it's much slower than what it was. And I think this means that there are two aspects to that, right? There is the aspect that uh, uh, people might start to worry for their jobs, especially as the inflation has been rising significantly and wiping out 
last year any um, income gains. Uh, there's the real estate where a lot of the Chinese middle class have invested is still in shaky grounds. So in terms of confidence, I think going this year, the Chinese population will still have some hesitations to consume as much as the government uh, would like. So my main take on this is that for businesses, um, the, the low-hanging fruits right. or the strategy of Chinese firms has been about speed to gain the market share first is going to require uh, more attention to how to build efficiencies in the business model and in the way companies run if the, the pace of growth is maturing. Another implications for the Chinese is that they are going to try and uh, expand internationally much more aggressively. And I was reading, for example, that for the digital companies, Singapore now is their favorite yes. launchpad for internationalization. And they do a lot of strategic partnership, right? Not necessarily they go all the way to the end consumer, but they would pick local players who have the last mile. And then things like Alibaba would be responsible for the data analytics, the backend infrastructure, exactly. but using the local partner who have the local brand name and recognition to do the last mile. That's absolutely right. And if you think about how uh, Aunt Financial lifted the fortunes uh, of one of the biggest uh, e-wallet uh, providers in, uh, in India. It's really by applying some customer pain points with which in China they've had an experience and were managed and managed to solve, uh, in particular here in this case the QR code, yep. how they transformed the fortunes of the company with which they partnered in India. That is very interesting because for the first time, Chinese companies really need to go international. In the past, yes. it's always Chinese companies having an international presence. Even companies like Lenovo or even higher, it really feels like Chinese enterprise. Like you're looking at the top management team is overwhelmingly Chinese. And even their overseas office is mostly Chinese staff members who would eat in Chinese restaurant, right? And maybe this would be the trigger points for the multinationals from China, the national champion, to appreciate a different culture, yeah. way of doing businesses differently, and really mature and take on an international stage. And that will be the real test, I think, for Chinese uh, internationalizers, because if you think about it, a lot of Asian firms have stumbled in their internationalization. And here I think about, for example, the Japanese, how they expanded so massively in the 70s and 80s, right. but were not able to sustain mm. that international market dominance precisely because culturally they remain fundamentally Japanese. Right. They didn't develop that global mindset that you need. And it's going to be very interesting whether the Chinese learn from their predecessors on the world stage. Although I must say one of the bright spots around internationalization of Chinese company would be TikTok, right? Yes. I mean, it's phenomenal. This Chinese, you know, video app, 15 seconds, each of these video really taken the world by but, storm. But do you know why? It's because it's a consumer driven uh, business. You know, basically it's you and me 
or TikTok is big in India or, you know, who upload things and keep it alive. Right. Uh, so you are saying the content isn't really It's culturally from... sensitive already. That's interesting, right? Yeah. So maybe that would be the Chinese way. If we couldn't really adapt, we just provide the platform or the toolkit mm -hmm. for the local population to customize and make it relevant to en exactly. uh, end consumers. Yeah. But that's also a company under a lot of scrutiny these yes. days. I heard that. I heard that. Yeah. The, the regulatory hurdles are rising for them too. So I have the last trend I want to talk about before we end for today's show is a plant-based protein. Yeah, that's very exciting, <laughs> especially for us in Switzerland, where our farmers are uh, the king, you know, uh, in the in this country. Yeah, can you imagine in China when you go to a restaurant asking for dumplings and all those will no longer be real meat, but uh, plant-based protein? What a shock. Have you tried Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat so far? No, no, I haven't there. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't there yet? I actually have to confess, I kind of like it. I'm so what do you surprised. Like about it? Well, so for Impossible Burger, for instance, like when you eat it, it does taste like real burger, like they can do medium well and you can feel the juice like a natural burger would. But I guess most people who would like to try out more plant-based burgers also for animal right reason, um, as well as carbon footprint. Now I'm not quite sure about the nutritional value because I look at the sodium content, it's pretty high on sodium content, but from an animal right, like I can never go vegetarian because I still love like the meat, the taste of meat. <laughs> yeah. But I would like to be more responsible to yes. cut down my meat consumption yeah. without sacrificing my taste, tastiness of my lunch and, and the quality of your culinary experiences. <laughs> yeah, I think Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat may be one of these alternatives. Yeah. So tell us why is it important in the in the Chinese New Year context? Well, people eat a lot of meat, uh, you know, whether it's Chinese sausage or, you know, different delicacy. And, and, you know, if you're looking at one of the major reserve of the Chinese society is pork bank, <laughs> believe it or not, the central government actually runs uh, a reserve of pork meat in China wow. because as the affluence continue to rise, consumption of meat continue to grow. And, and Chinese is being such a society of consumption of pork, uh, that has always been uh, one of the major worries that whether we would have any shortages and whether it would be plagued by, you know, uh, animal the, the flu as well. Like we had last year, yeah. That's right. That's always been a major problem. But I think it's also a complex industry too, because the localization would be so important. You think about Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, they are patty. Have you ever tried chicken feet in uh, over Chinese dim sum? <laughs> <laughs> so I see them served all the time each time I go to China, but I must say, you know, I have a, a sort of uh, uh, bird uh, <laughs> phobia and uh, seeing those feet in the dish uh, are not really attractive. You really <laughs> see the bones and skins on the table, yeah, right? Yeah, it's incredible. And it's the like way that. Chinese delicacies being seen is whether it's minced meat or chicken feet, you really have the texture of the skin. Yes. You, you spit out the bones and that's part of the gourmet experience. Mm -hmm. Versus, of course, in the US context, you would have a fillet, which is homogenous meat content in a way. 
And, and I think this is where maybe going forward is this race of both technologies as well as market research, whether any of these plant-based uh, manufacturer can really deliver uh, the texture, the complexity that fit the local market with 1.3 billion consumer potentially. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So the, the real question in terms of uh, sustainability is of course, uh, the case for it is completely uh, obvious. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the planet itself, it, we just simply can no longer accommodate so many animal farms, whether it's cattle or pigs or chicken, it's just not sustainable. But that is definitely one area to watch out because I already see China-based Walmart store, they are selling also plant-based meat product these days. So, you know, the future is already here. Right. So over Chinese New Year, I definitely try to look out for some, you know, plant-based meat sausage for, for the cuisine. Right. I will not try the, the chicken feed, but anyway, I wish you all, our listeners, a very happy Chinese New Year. Yes. And happy to you, Ch Howard, of course. Thank you. Happy Chinese New Year.